Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is in Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there were no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing him to a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, had, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of God to us. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, If we've not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors, and I've never slammed my grandma's head in a van door before. So uh, I just thought we were supposed to check in about that. So that's my check-in for you guys. Uh, that's a terrifying story, Will. I don't know if you're as big as you are then and sixth grade as you are now, but that's, that is really scary. I'm glad she's okay. Uh, man, great to have you with us. Uh, one of the things that we do on Sundays is we rehearse the story of God and the story that God has invited us into, and all week we're forgetting. All week we're getting inundated left and right with other stories, and this is a moment where we get to rehearse the story of Jesus Christ and his love for us and what he's done to redeem us and to bring us into a new way of life. So if, if you're not a part of that story or you don't know where you land or what you believe about that, this is a place where we want to wrestle with you. We want you to not feel like you have to check your brain in at the door, but you can bring in the skepticism and you can bring in the questions and the doubts and the church heard and all of it. It all counts and we want to process it with you. So thanks for being with us today. We're going to be in Mark chapter two. If you have your Bible, go to Mark chapter two. We're six weeks in to a series on the gospel of Mark, looking at the life of Jesus through the lens of the Apostle Peter, written by a guy named John Mark. And so that's where we're at. I want to take a second and pray for us, and then we're going to work through the first 12 verses of chapter 2. Father, thank you for today. God, thank you for the gift of gathering again this Sunday to, to remember and to be reminded of your love. And I just, I confess, God, there are moments throughout this week, many moments throughout this week, where I have forgotten and I have been more enamored with other stories. And I want to thank you for the gift 
to be able to sit under the word today, even as the one that gets to preach the word, I'm sitting under your word. And I pray that you would, in, in every way, God, humble us so that we would stand underneath your good authority through scripture today. And I pray that this would not just be a sermon. I pray that this would be formation. I pray that you would form us. And I pray that you would meet us. There's things that need to happen in our hearts that I have no power to do. And I pray that you would do that. There's things that might be said today that are not helpful. I pray that you would allow those to be quickly forgotten. And if there's anything that's good and helpful, God, I pray that you would allow it to be remembered. In Jesus' name, amen. Our culture has a very complicated relationship with forgiveness. I don't know if you've noticed this. It's weird, isn't it? Because we live in a culture where things like love and accepting everybody no matter what are sort of the mantra of the day. Like, I I don't know that you could go through history and find a culture that had more of an emphasis on love and acceptance being heralded from the rooftops of society And yet, simultaneously, we don't know what it means to forgive another person. Here's what I mean. Have you ever noticed how simultaneously we're talking about love and acceptance while also canceling anybody the second that they say something or tweet something that we find unacceptable? We live in this culture where it's like, love, but only as love is defined by me in this present cultural moment, and the second that that shifts and changes, then I'm going to now shame you and cancel you. And this is just a really bizarre thing that, li- that happens all around. Like, you can be guaranteed that if you do something really wrong, if you do something really shameful, at least in the eyes of society, you will be shamed. You will experience wrath. You will not experience love. You will actually experience outrage. There's a woman named Meg Mason who uh, was publicly shamed after writing a book on motherhood. And here's how she described it in an article that she wrote called What We've Forgotten About Forgiveness and This Current Cancel Culture. Here's what she says. She says, civilian or celebrity, whiting out our mistakes, misdeeds, and horrible decisions is something that none of us get to do in the age of the permanent digital rap sheet. At any time, things that we've said or done, sometimes years before, can be dredged from the depths of the internet, and even if we've repented and changed since then, we feel the consequences all over again. So we live in a culture that emphasizes love and acceptance, and yet the virtue of forgiveness is something that is increasingly becoming a bit of a unicorn in our moment. And here's what's so crazy. Like, if you ever see this play out, it's actually really scandalous, isn't it, when someone else in society forgives another person. It's almost like we don't know what to do with it, and it's scandalous. And the reason why I bring that up is because in our culture, forgiveness is scandalous. But there's something that happens in the story in Mark chapter 2 where Jesus forgives a man, and that forgiveness that he does is equally as scandalous. It's something that's shocking. It's something that's really, really hard to wrap your head around. So in light of that, what I want to do is kind of walk you through this story. Even though it's familiar to some of us, there's things in this that we often miss. So let's jump in. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to him. Now, let's just pause there. Uh, This is fascinating. We remember the last weeks, the story was Jesus healed a leper. He healed a lot of people, but one of the people that he healed 
One of the persons that he healed, rather, was a leper. And because of that leper getting healed, it was such a dramatic event that Jesus' fame spread throughout the whole region, so much so that Jesus could no longer even enter into the villages and in the towns. He had to stay outside of the city. So chapter 2, there's a transition that happens. We don't know how long Jesus has spent out in the wilderness, but at some point he's made his way back into Capernaum. And one little detail that gets missed over again and again in the story is that Jesus is actually at home. Now think about that. He grew up in Nazareth, but history tells us that most likely Mary, his mom, moved to Capernaum and had a house in Capernaum when Jesus was doing his ministry for those almost three years. So this is either, this event, the story either occurs in Jesus's literal house or in the Apostle Peter's house where he's staying. So that kind of changes the whole dynamic, doesn't it? When they're breaking apart the roof here, this isn't just some random person's house. This is like Jesus's own house, which is funny when he's like, hey, your sins are forgiven, not just the sin of destroying my home just now, right? But all the other ones too. So with that in mind, this is this event where the crowd has gathered in. They're they're like, oh, the healer is back. Let's go hear what he has to say. Let's go figure out what he's going to be doing. So they press in all around. It's such a large crowd. Look what happens next. Verse three. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And we don't know much about these men at all. We just know that there's four of them, plus the paralytic. We don't know anything about the paralytic other than that he was unable to walk. We don't know if he asked his friends to bring him to Jesus. We don't know how his friends knew that they should bring him to Jesus. We don't know any of those details. They just, we assume, have heard about the healing ministry of Jesus. They know that their friend can't walk, so they're going to bring their friend to Jesus. And here's what's so crazy. They show up to the scene, paint this picture in your head. There's a large crowd gathered at the house, so much so that they can't get through the door. Now, I've kind of painted this picture in my head that it's a large, rambunctious crowd, but I don't think that's the case because what is Jesus doing in this story? He's teaching. So that means everybody else is doing what? Hopefully listening, right? And so it's a quiet moment where Jesus is teaching and no one seems to care about this guy. No one seems to pay any attention. So the friends can't make it through the house. They decide to go around. And in the first century, houses essentially uh, had an inside section with, on the outside, a staircase that would go up to the rooftop. The rooftop was a flat rooftop where they would take branches or sticks and lay them out in a cross-pattern section and then take clay or mud and pack it in with the branches, and over time, the sun would bake that out, and they would roll it out flat, so much so that it actually became a secure place to hang out. It's where you would dry your clothes. It's where you would eat breakfast. It's where you would spend time in the afternoon, because again, electricity is not a thing, so if you want to like have light coming through your house, it's difficult, so that's a place where they would spend a lot of time. Think of this roof like what we might think of as a modern-day outdoor deck. So these men, they head up to the roof, And they're deciding that they're going to break through the roof, which is possible, but very challenging to get through. Like, it is possible to break through, but it's going to take some work. So they began to bust through the clay to get to Jesus. Paint this story in your head with me. Imagine if this was happening right now as I was teaching. 
Like we had a couple guys up on our roof and they're like bending back this cheap metal that our building is made of. And, and, and they're lowering a guy through, like I've preached through a lot of distracting things. It's not uncommon for us to have random birds fly in our sanctuary. If you're ever in this room and it starts to rain, it sounds like the scariest thing in the world, like, cause it's just a metal tin roof and you can't hear anything. I mean, it's, so I've preached through some really distracting things, but if I'm preaching and some person's getting lowered from the roof right in front of me, like the whole thing's shutting down right there. I can't go forward. So imagine, Jesus is probably in the middle of what I assume is a pretty good sermon. Everybody's attentive, they're listening. And then there's like dirt clods coming through. There's clay being broken apart. Light starts to shine through. And I think in my head, I have this seamless picture, almost like they had this crane that just, you know, perfectly lowered this guy down. I don't think that's really what happened. This guy's a paralytic. It's four guys. They're just trying to get him to Jesus. So it's like, you know, he's like falling around. They finally get him down to Jesus. And everybody in the room knows what's about to happen. We know what this guy wants. Everybody knows what this guy needs. And yet what Jesus decides to do is scandalous. Notice what he says. Verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. First thing I want you to see is the scandal of going deeper. This is the scandal of going deeper. Imagine being a room in the room that day. Imagine being the paralytic. You get lowered down in front of Jesus after all that work. It's not like a couple minutes. Like this took them time to break through the roof to get to Jesus. He's lowered down. And Jesus responds by saying, son, your sins are forgiven. The paralytic is probably thinking, uh, hey, hey, thanks for that. But I don't know if you realize this. I'm sure everybody else in the house realizes this and everybody else in the whole town realizes this. But I'm actually not here to have my sins forgiven. I'm actually here because I can't walk. I have a more immediate problem, and I really would like for you to fix the more immediate problem. And yet here's the scandal. Jesus is actually saying, no, you don't. You don't have a more immediate problem. Your deepest problem is the need to be forgiven. See, what Jesus is doing with this guy is he's taking this guy deeper, saying, yeah, you're physically unable to walk, but there's a spiritual side of you that is more in need And there's something that's happening on a deeper level where you actually have the weight of sin over your life and it's separated you from the presence of God. It's separated you from the peace of God. It's separated you from having a relationship of health with the living God. And that is what you need more than anything else. Isn't it fascinating that often the thing that brings us to Jesus is actually not the need for forgiveness? We often come to Jesus so that Jesus will get us to our other saviors. Like we feel a brokenness in our life. Maybe it's related to marriage. And it's not uncommon for people to have marriage issues and then kind of wind up in the church looking for Jesus to touch their marriage. And the thought is, man, if if God would heal my marriage, then I'd be okay on a soul level. Like if he would just touch my marriage, if he would heal this, if he would fix it, then things would get better. Or or maybe it's your loneliness. And you think, man, if, if, if God would deal with my loneliness, like it's the most acute pain that I carry, if he would just touch my loneliness, if he could could take it away, if he would bring someone into my life to, to fix my loneliness, then I would be okay on a soul level. Or maybe it's financial struggles, or 
a physical health thing, or maybe it's a difficult child, or maybe it's some weighty issue in your life, or maybe it's like a childhood wound that happened. And and friends, here's the thing. All of those things are good to bring to Jesus, and he actually cares about every one of them. There's nothing off limits for him that he cares about. But what's so crazy is that often the feeling that you and I have is that if I would just get this acute felt need dealt with, then everything in my life is going to be okay. And the point of this story is to show us that actually you and I carry an even deeper problem. Think about it from this paralytic's perspective for just a minute. Imagine if Jesus healed this guy right there on the spot and never dealt with his sins. He's thinking, if I could just walk like everybody else, that'd be so much better. And by the way, being a paralytic in the first century is a really, really terrible plight. When I was in Ghana, I was in a village where they didn't have access to virtually any of the medical uh, stuff that you and I take for granted on a day-to-day basis. And I saw several people who were either paralytic or unable to walk or had uh, things wrong with their body that if they just lived in Oklahoma, they could easily get fixed. And you think about the detriment that it is to a person's way of life, not being able to work, not being able to provide for yourself, in in an agrarian society, this is a really challenging thing. So it's not like it's nothing. And the guy's thinking, if I could just walk, I'd be better. I'd be all fixed. Everything would be good in my life. But really, would it? What happens when Jesus heals the guy in six years? How is he? 16 years, how is he? Is he still waking up thinking, on a soul level, everything's great. I've got, I, I, I once couldn't walk and now I can't. Everything's better. Jesus knows that actually there's gonna come a day where this man, though he would be healed, is still going to get sick. His body's still going to break down and decay, and one day he's going to die. What does it profit a man to gain his legs and lose his soul? Jesus knows, actually, that there's a deeper thing that needs to be addressed. And friends, here's what's crazy. That's not just true of this man. That's true of every person in the room. I don't know what you're carrying in today, but I think that all of us have our own felt need that we really want dealt with, whether it's a difficult marriage or loneliness or financial things or some brokenness in our life or an addiction that we can't seem to shake. Whatever it might be, we have this thing. And yet what Jesus wants to do with you today is actually peel back the layers for just a minute, and he wants to go deeper because you and I, we actually have something bigger than what's been done to us or bigger than the pain or the problem that we carry, and that's that you and I need to be forgiven. There's a story, one of my favorite stories, that really kind of illustrates this from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. It's uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. If you've read the book, uh, there's a boy in that book named Eustace Scrub, and Eustace Scrub is a nasty little boy. Nobody likes him. He's mean. He's self-absorbed and prideful and arrogant. He's just hard to want to be around. He's that type of character. He finds himself on a boat, the Dawn Treader. The boat eventually stops at an island, and Eustace is out kind of exploring the island. He goes into a cave, and when he goes into the cave, guess what he finds? Treasure. Tons of treasure. Diamonds and rubies and gold, all this treasure. And he thinks, and the first thought he has is, Now that I'm rich, I can show all of those people who have mistreated me my whole life. Now that I've finally gotten the thing that my heart has wanted, it's going to fix me, and I can now mistreat those people who have mistreated me because I'm wealthy now. I'm rich. I'll have the upper hand. I'll have power. So this is his first thought, and he falls asleep on this treasure, not realizing that it's actually a dragon's hoard, and it's actually cursed treasure. And so because he fell asleep with dragonish thoughts, he wakes up, not as a boy, 
but he now actually wakes up as a dragon. And he realizes to himself, oh my gosh, my friends aren't going to recognize me. They're going to try to kill me because I'm a scary dragon now. I can't get on the boat because I'm a dragon now. So the boat's going to leave and I'm going to be left on this island in isolation. Here's what's so crazy. The thing that he thought would fix him is the very thing that's actually ruined him. The scariest thing is when you get what you think is going to fix you and it actually doesn't satisfy you at the deepest level. And here's what happens in the story. He, he's just distraught. He's overwhelmed. Long story short, Aslan, the lion, shows up, representation of God in the story. Aslan shows up, and he leads him to this pond, this pool of water, and he says, undress and jump in. And what he means is like, scrape off the dragon scales and jump in. So here's Eustace. He tries to scrape himself and he can't get it off. So he tries again with more vigor. He can't get it off. He tries again with even more vigor to, to get the, the dragon scales off, and he can't. For the third time, he can't get it off, and he's just overwhelmed. Finally, Aslan says, you're going to have to let me do it. Now listen to Eustace describe Aslan stripping him of the dragon scales. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So the very first tear he made went so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, smooth and soft, Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It hurt like anything, but only for a moment. After that, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. Friends, God is in the business of turning us into humans again. And he's willing to not just address the felt need that we have, but actually to claw and dig deeper and deeper and deeper to get to the real need, which is forgiveness of sins. The whole point of forgiveness of sins or forgiveness in general is so that you can have a relationship with someone restored again. Have you ever had a relationship of love that got fractured by sin or brokenness and that person withheld forgiveness from you? Your relationship can't ever go back to normal or be the same until forgiveness is is done. And this is the story that Jesus is entering into this man where he looks at him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. You getting healed is not going to be the deepest thing that fixes you. You getting that problem solved is not going to do the thing. It's not going to do the trick to satisfy you at the deepest level. What you need is peace with God. You need forgiveness of sins so that you can have a restored relationship with God. Jesus This is the scandal of him going deeper. There's another thing I want you to see in verse five again, because there's more to the story. It's not just the scandal of Jesus going deeper. Here's what it says. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Second thing I want you to see is the scandal of undeserved forgiveness. There's forgiveness that happens in the story, but In every way, it's undeserved. Here's what I mean. If you read the story carefully with a critical eye or with a theological lens, what you're going to realize is that there's something very important missing in the story that shows up in every other scriptural story of forgiveness. And that's this, that Jesus actually offers this young man forgiveness when this man never asked for it. Did you notice? 
Not one time does this man turn to Jesus and say, I would like for you to forgive me. Not one time does he even display any aspect of repentance. So Jesus freely just forgives the man without this man really doing anything. Yeah, it's true that the man and his friends had faith, but it wasn't faith necessarily in Jesus forgiving him. He's not showing up because he thinks Jesus is going to forgive him. He's showing up here, and his friends bring him here because they think Jesus is going to heal him. So if the faith isn't anything, it's faith in healing, not faith in forgiveness. And yet Jesus freely forgives the man. There's no other story in the New Testament in which Jesus forgives someone without that person offering up some sort of repentance. This is the only one. Why is that? Well, it's not that Jesus is trying to undo all of the scriptural teaching about the need for repentance and its connection with forgiveness. That's not the point. We get a hint of this in verse 8. In verse 8, I'm not going to read it to you until just a minute from now, but in verse 8, Jesus does something that's really kind of giving us a clue into what's happening. He perceives the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts of the scribes. In other words, you don't have to say something out loud for Jesus to know what you're thinking and what's in your heart and what's in your motives. So here's what's so fascinating. We don't really know exactly what's going on here, but Jesus is looking at this young man laying on the ground in front of him who so badly wants to be healed that his friends have brought him this far and done all this work, and yet Jesus looks even deeper and he perceives that there's another need inside of this man and that even if he doesn't have words to know how to say it, even if he doesn't have the language for it, there's something in him that knows that he needs forgiveness and mercy from God. And what Jesus does in an act of undeserved grace is he just plows right in. See, here's the point. Jesus doesn't need a ton of your well-put-together words. He doesn't need a ton of you having it really figured out or sorted out what you really need from God. He's able to discern your thoughts and your intentions and your motives. And listen, wherever there's even a crack in your heart that wants mercy and wants grace from God, Jesus is ready to just bust right in there. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, Jesus is so aggressive with his grace. He comes at you and pours his grace into you even if you give him the slightest of openings. In fact, he actually creates his own openings. Faith is a gift. This man wasn't trying to believe. This man wasn't trying to find forgiveness. He wasn't trying to find grace. Jesus comes after him. And I just wonder how many of you here today are actually coming to Jesus with one thing in mind that you really want him to address. And you don't even have words or language for the other things that are really going on. And Jesus is looking into your heart right now and it's like, he doesn't even need your permission. He's just so eager and ready to give you forgiveness. Do you get that today? Like the same way that these friends are breaking apart the roof to get to Jesus. In many ways, Jesus is trying to break apart the roof of your soul to get to you so that he can forgive you. That's the nature of his pursuit. This man doesn't deserve it. He doesn't even ask for it. There's no sign of repentance. God just says in Christ, you are forgiven. Some of you need to hear that because you're carrying stuff from your childhood. You're carrying stuff from your past. You're carrying stuff that's shameful that you've done, things that you, could, you wish you could take back. If you had all the money in the world, you would give it away so that you could get that one decision back. And today, Jesus wants to release you. He wants to release you and say, I actually forgive you of that. It's a big deal. Here's the last thing I want you to see. 
Not just the scandal of going deeper, not just the scandal of undeserved forgiveness, but this grace, it's the scandal of costly grace. Look at verse six. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes, if you don't know who they are, they they were essentially what we might assume as like modern day theologians. You know, these are the people that are professors at seminaries. Scribes were responsible for taking scripture and carefully writing down every word so that they could pass the truth of scripture on from one generation to the next. And the scribes are in their head, they're not saying it out loud, they're watching this event unfold and they're saying, this guy is blaspheming. This guy, he can't say what he's saying about forgiving this man of his sins. And actually, here's what's crazy, the scribes are not wrong. The scribes are actually right because their their concept of only God can forgive sins is affirmed again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. You have the, the prophets who might be able to say something like, the Lord has put away your sin. You have the priest in the Old Testament that could pronounce that God had forgiven someone only after certain sacrifices were made in the concept of the sacrificial system. But no one could ever say, your sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. Why? Because ultimately, all sin is against God. Do you remember the story in Psalm 51 where David like kills a guy and sleeps with someone that isn't his wife and gets someone pregnant and the baby dies? There's all this tragedy surrounded. In Psalm 51, he writes, against you and you alone have I sinned. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, all of our sin is against God himself. And so only God, as the ultimate offended party, can forgive. It's like, I've got two daughters and a young boy. If my two go- daughters get into it, which they do a lot, I, it's, it would be weird if Bear, my son, walked up to him and said, I forgive you of your sin against me. Be like, well, it's not against you. You know, like you weren't even involved in the conversation. So this is how the scribes are thinking when they hear Jesus talk. They're saying, who are you? Only God can forgive sins. So in their head, they're thinking, is he claiming to be God? Now listen to how Jesus responds. Verse eight. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, don't you love that he can do that? Like, that's so great. I I don't know that I would like that because people often have horrible thoughts. So I don't, you know, it's like already Facebook is bad enough. I don't need to know like all the stuff you chose not to put on Facebook, right? But here's Jesus, immediately perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Which is actually easier to say? This is a complicated question, isn't it? Which is easier to say? Because on the one hand, for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, it's easier just to say that because we don't really know if it really happened or not. You can't see if that really happened. On the other hand, if you say, hey, get up and walk, well, you can verify in the moment if that worked or not. So it's interesting. The argument seems to be that Jesus is saying... Anybody can just say your sins are forgiven, but not everybody can say, rise, get up, and walk, because that's immediately verifiable. But actually, here's what's happening here. It's interesting. For Jesus to say your sins are forgiven is actually not easier, 
Because by doing that, what Jesus is doing is admitting that he himself actually is God. He actually has the power to forgive sins. And when he chooses to say this, friends, this is so important to understand, Jesus is setting off a domino effect that leads him to his execution. By saying, I am God, the Son of Man, who has arrived to forgive sins, Jesus is essentially putting himself in the charge of blasphemy, which is leading him to his own death. Friends, here's the point. This is grace from God that is undeserved, unmerited, that he's pouring out on this young man. But by forgiving and healing this young man, Jesus is ensuring that he is going to be executed on a cross. This grace comes free to the man, but it's going to cost Jesus his own life. This is a big deal. This story actually is a transition because in Mark chapter 1, everybody's just amazed at what Jesus is doing. They're all like, wow, this is incredible. But chapter 2 turns a corner, and we get five back-to-back confrontations with Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. And by the very end of it, here's what they're saying in chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy Jesus. So friends, here's the point. Jesus forgives the paralytic, but by so doing, he's saying, I'm gonna die now. Jesus takes this man on a stretcher and forgives and heals him, but it's gonna lead to Jesus getting stretched out on a cross for the sins of the world. This is free grace to you and I. It actually doesn't cost you anything, but what you have to understand is that it costs Jesus his own life and his own blood, and that's how powerful his love for you is. That he's saying, hey, listen, I actually came so that I could go deeper with you, so that I could forgive you, but it's going to cost me my own life. So here's how I'm going to end. I don't know what you're carrying in the room today. Maybe you came today with like a felt need, a thing that's like really bothering you or something that's overwhelming you or something that you, you're asking God, if I had one wish, if I had one request that you could address one area of my life, it's this. And I just want you to hear today that there's something deeper that he wants to address and it's your sin before God and he wants to forgive you of that today. So whatever you're carrying, he's not actually shaming you. He's not using his authority to push you away. He's breaking in. He's pulling apart the layers. He wants to forgive you and make you human. Father, I pray for my friends. I pray that you would work in their life today. I don't know what is is in their heart. I don't know what barriers exist, but I pray that by your mercy and by your grace that you would forgive. Thank you that you care about our bodies. Thank you that you healed this guy. But more than you care about healing this guy, you actually care about our soul care about the souls of every person in this room. Yes, you care about their felt needs, but there's stuff that they're carrying that you, there's stuff deeper that you love and you want to forgive. So do that in this moment, in Jesus' name, amen.